big difference, I think, between hunting in the US and hunting in the UK is for us, it's really a management issue. I tell you, it's bloody useless because the trouble with tweeds, they don't do anything well other than soak up water. I came up with this idea to stick a bipod on the rifle with a magnet. We launched the product about five or six years ago now. You hunt them, somebody's paying good dollar for doing that, and the meat is still processed. I, I struggle to see any difference between that and a regular cow farm, frankly. I, I say if you get young kids out hunting, they'll never forget that experience. They might not remember the first film they saw or the first computer game they played, but they're always going to remember that first hunt. This is Rob Gearing from Spartan Precision, sometimes known as Mr. G, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. There's a lot of people that can pull the trigger on an animal, but they don't know what to do with it after. If you would have told me that a stupid turkey was going to make me get that excited, I would have told you you were crazy. It's just a skill that you have to perfect over a lot of years. Hunting is a tribal activity. We've lost the tribe. We can't even hunt together anymore. Well, the people that are anti-hunting are usually pro-abortion. So kill the people, save the animals. I just remember riding my horse back to camp with the northern lights and the moose behind me, and I'm like, this is why I've done this. This is as cool as an experience as I will get. Hi, this is Jim Shockey. This is Sam Sohol, the public land bus guy. Hi, I'm Kimmy Greentree. Hi, this is South Cox with the Western Bowhunter Podcast. Hey, this is Ben Dedamonte, a.k.a. Shed Crazy. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, y'all. Today I have on the line coming all the way from across the pond, Rob Gearing, also known as Mr. G of Spartan Precision Equipment. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I know we've got a bit of a time difference, and so I'm glad we were able to get this scheduled. Absolute pleasure, Sam. Delighted to be here. <laughs> so one thing, you know, I always really like to start out with, and and especially with my guests that, you know, kind of aren't aren't here in in 
the traditional like American hunting and fishing setting is I always just like to find out how you got introduced to all of this, the outdoors and, and hunting and, and all of that. And I feel like, like I said, especially uh, with my guests that uh, weren't raised quite the same as everyone else, it's always such an interesting story to hear. Uh, it's a good question, actually. Um, so I don't come from a hunting family. Far from it. Uh, my father was a, a sports journalist, so he was into football, cricket, and all those sports that <laughs> I was never any good at. Um, but I think deep down in my DNA, I'm very much an outdoors person and I've always had an absolute passion for the outdoors. Um, the hunting, yeah, I had air rifles when I was younger and bits and pieces and did, did little bits and pieces with that, but nothing drastic. So I really got into the outdoor world through my climbing. That was much more of an important element of my life in the early days, uh, probably more, far more formative as well. And the hunting side became more and more important as I got older. Um, it's not easy if you're in the UK uh, for, for some of your listeners that probably don't know. We don't have that luxury, the public lands that you've got there, Sam, uh, and we don't have a big landmass either. So to get into hunting is pretty challenging, um, non impossible in some cases. Uh, so you either have to know people with land or you have to be extremely wealthy. Um, and in the early days, I didn't know either. So that's probably <laughs> put a limitation on my capabilities to get into hunting in a serious way early on. I later, in later years, I met a really lovely guy, a guy called Jim Creeden, who's sadly no longer with us, who I phoned up once. He used to take people out hunting. I'd have been in my early 20s. And I said, look, um, could I come out deer stalking with you? And we built, we built a great relationship. And he was an absolute fantastic mentor for me. And that guy was an absolute specialist on roe stalking. Roe was a small deer, size of a Labrador. Um, and I still, probably still my favorite type of hunting is roe stalking, um, you know, on a nice sort of Sussex or Hampshire evening, going out in a pair of shorts and trekking those fellas is pretty exciting. And the nice thing about if you do manage to successfully harvest one, it's, uh, it's not a game changer. You can carry one in a, in a pack. So uh, it makes life a little bit easier. But um, yeah, yeah, there's that, a that slight really difference. Much. There's a slight difference uh, between that and trying to pack out a, a you know, thousand pound <laughs> moose or elk or something. <laughs> it was quite an eye opener for me, Sam. I was in Colorado a couple of years back with a lovely lady, a vet, and uh, we got her into a nice elk. And that was the first time I'd actually been elk hunting in the States. And um, yeah, butchering that thing on the hill was a bit of an eye opener. But that, that girl did a fantastic job. I mean, she was 330 yards off, um, off a tripod unit with a 308, which is probably slightly undergunned for one of those, one of those pieces. Uh, but she, she absolutely smacked it in the right place. And that thing just sat down and bled out. And it was, uh, it was well done. Yeah, top marks to her. <laughs> But yeah, so, you know, you're, you're talking a little bit. I feel like um, I, I hear you speak and I know I've, I've, we were speaking earlier. I, I've had Rachel Carey on, I've had Byron Pace on yeah. and uh, you know, I've talked with them about it, but even talking with them, I feel like there's always going to be a picture as an American, there's always going to be a picture in our head of a British hunting, if you will. Yeah. Um, and that it that it is one thing and it's going to be the, the tweed, 
the very uh, high-end classic shotguns and uh you know everyone everyone going out and having a grand time so <laughs> there's no there's no doubt sam that definitely exists it still exists um and certainly on the grouse moors it would be very much like that i've been fortunate enough to do a bit of beating and picking up you know on a shoot with the queen and my my and oldest daughter had a great little working dog uh, a cocker and she took it out and she was next to the queen picking up birds and it was just like quite surreal really uh, but um, there's also a huge chunk of the UK that wouldn't fall into that category. Um, and certainly down south, the, the deer stalking is pretty much, it's, it's, it's got probably more similarities to what you guys do than the tweeds and the grandeur that you, you would have seen. But yeah, if you go to Scotland or Yorkshire and such like, you very much still see that. And it's actually, it's quite fun. It's, 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 it's quite nice. It's almost like stepping back into a little time zone that's gone in many other aspects of our world today. Um, and I find it quite sad because it is going. But if you came out hunting with me, I'm going to be dressed like you guys are. Um, the big difference, I think, between hunting in the US and hunting in the UK is for us, it's really a management issue as much as hunting. And we don't have the tags we just have, I, I look after an estate, two estates down here with maybe another eight, eight deer hunters, and we'll probably shoot 320 animals a year. Oh, so wow. a lot of Americans sort of struggle with those kind of numbers um, because it's just a different issue. But then we haven't got the land to cope with these deer. The farmers give us a hard time because they're obviously tucking into the crops. So it, it becomes very much a deer management issue per se going out and actually hunting for pleasure. And I think, you know, we do get a lot of that in the States as well, where, you know, it depends on the species you're hunting and where you're hunting it. You know, you look at something like white-tailed deer or hogs or, you know, coyotes or whatever it happens to be. Those are very much a management issue. Um, You know, depending on the area with white-tailed deer, for sure, you know, you go you go back east and, uh, you know, it's you have to half of the time. I think you have to get special car insurance for deer because there's just so many of them running out. And yeah. hogs just are just, I mean, a multiply like crazy and they're destroying crops and destroying uh, our wild places that, and taking resources from native wild game. And so we definitely do have a lot of that. But when it comes to kind of the iconic species that, you know, you think of uh out western you know in the western united states and hunting whether yeah. that's mule deer or elk or whatever for sure that's you know there's there's management involved in some areas but for the most part i it, i mean you're not you're not seeing in in one small area <laughs> hundreds of elk being taken each necessarily no. no you've got you guys have done a fantastic job in getting those numbers back up as well i mean it's it's and really that's very much thankful to, I guess, to the, the the hunters out there that really appreciate the value of these animals. But uh, yeah, it was a different story for you guys at the end of the Second World War, I think. Um, and your populations of those sort of key species have really, really gone through the roof, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's a testament to this this North American model of wildlife conservation. And, uh, you know, I've talked about it hundreds of times on this podcast, but it's it's hands down the most successful 
you know, plan the most successful method of wildlife conservation that's done. I mean, you look at, like we talked about white tailed deer, they were almost yeah. extinct. Now they're so plentiful. They're a nuisance. Yeah. You look at elk, there's, you know, uh, they were almost gone. You look at uh, the pronghorn antelope, wild turkey, wood ducks. I mean, there's countless species here in North America that due to kind of commercialized hunting were almost gone. And now since this has been instituted, no animal, not only have they been restored, but no animal has gone extinct thanks to legal ethical hunting. Yeah. And it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. And something as hunters, I think we probably don't shout out about enough. Um, and certainly in the UK, there's a, there's a real anti-hunting flavor. And it's, it's, I often blame ourselves because we don't educate people well enough. And I think that's a responsibility for the hunters to do. I think you guys do a much better job over there than we do here, frankly. Um, and I was, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I heard your, your hunting licenses that have issued in the last 12 months have gone through the roof, which clearly shows that more and more people are getting out there and doing things, which is to be congratulated. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially with all the lock, you know, the lockdowns that have been happening all over the world for the past uh, year and a half. Um, everyone's like, well, if I'm, if I can't, uh, if I can't do stuff around the city, I might as well figure out how to do stuff outdoors. And, uh, everyone's had time at home and, and all of this extra spare time. And so a lot of people I believe are just finally taking on those things they've always wanted to try once or learn once. And, uh, I'm curious to see if it's going to be something that has any long longevity where, you know, okay, these people, they wanted to try hunting one year, maybe they, they bought their license and they went out and did it for the first time. And I'm curious if it's going to be something that continues year after year, or if it's, we're going to, you know, in a, you know, at the end of this year, we're going to see a precipitous drop in those license sales again, or the people in the outdoors. That's a, that's a really interesting question, Sam, actually. Um, I mean, as a kid, I, I say, if you get people out, young kids out hunting, they'll never forget that experience. And I'd say most of that rings true for young adults as well, if they're new to it. They might not remember the first film they saw or the first computer game they played, but they're always going to remember that first hunt. Um, and I think that's quite seismic in importance, actually. It's, it's, it's not just about getting your meat. It's about a whole adventure. And for me, being an outdoors person, it doesn't matter whether I've got ice axes in my hand, fly rod, or a rifle, or a bow. Not that I'm very good with a bow, but um, <laughs> it's just an excuse to be outdoors. And those are the tools that provide me that justification for spending more and more time outside. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there is one thing I want to hop back to that you, that you kind of mentioned offhand that I would love to hear more about. And I know people were probably like, oh, he has to tell that story. Is, is you mentioned uh, hunting with the queen. Yeah, so I had a very good gamekeeper friend of mine um, who used to work down south on an estate. He got a job up in Abistead, and Abistead was owned by or is owned by the Duke of Westminster. Well, the Duke of Westminster, that Duke of Westminster is dead now, uh, but he had a pretty good life, I think. So, uh, yeah, he packed it in. Um, so <laughs> I think his son's, son's the new Duke of Westminster, and uh, my gamekeeping buddy said, hey, get your, get your ass up here. Dog. I've got somebody interesting for her to meet. And it's, it's a pretty funny story, actually. So uh, we jumped in the car, drove up. I had no, no idea who was going to be there, Sam. So I just jumped in. We caught up with Tony, had dinner with him. 
got out the next morning. I was with Tony. Uh, Jenna, my oldest, was uh, popped out with a dog. And I said, hang on a minute, Tony, that's, that's the queen. He said, yeah, yeah, that's right. And it, so the queen was, uh, she got some Labradors. She was working those. Uh, and that was her, That she really gets a lot of pleasure out of that, apparently. And then her husband, who passed recently, he was he was shooting on the day. And um, anyway, my daughter had an epic day. It was quite quite magical seeing that happen. And we were actually staying with the uh, queen's dog handler. This is an embarrassing story, but I'm going to fess up right now. <laughs> and uh, the Queen's dog handler said, what are you doing tomorrow, Rob? And I said, oh, I was just going to do a bit of beating, pushing the birds through and things. He said, well, do you want to take one of the Queen's dogs? She won't be using them all. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll give that a go. So he introduced me to this lovely lab um, called Spitfire. And uh, honestly, it's the, yeah, this is quite amusing. So um, in the morning, Spitfire and I go off. And uh, Spitfire comes back with its first bird in his mouth. It's not quite finished off. So I hand, Spitfire basically comes up, gives me the, the bird, which I promptly grab hold of and let go and it flies off. <laughs> and Spit, Spitfire looks at me like it goes, you, total knob. Right. And that was the end of my dog relationship with a crazy dog. Yeah. <laughs> so I, was, I was back to beating. Right. So, uh, yeah, if that dog could speak, honestly. Yeah. But uh, I'm pleased to say my daughter did a much better job at picking up birds than I did. <laughs> yeah. There ends that embarrassing story, which I've probably never told before, but it's uh, it's out there for all to hear about now. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. Running, mm. running the queen's dogs and you lose the yeah. first bird it brings back. Yeah. Didn't bring me back another one, Sam. I can guarantee that. <laughs> but that is exactly the kind of day that where all the Land Rovers in the morning would be the same colour, lined up. All the keepers would be in their tweeds. You know, everybody's properly dressed for that day, and it's fun. You know, it's a bit of it's a bit of theatre, really. Um, but it's great to have experienced those things, and I think it's less and less now. But see, certainly, if you went up to um, go hind stalking or stags uh, on the stags in Scotland. You pretty pretty much expect to turn up in that paraphernalia, mm-hmm. and it's I tell you it's bloody useless because the trouble with tweeds, they don't do anything well other than soak up water. <laughs> so uh, you know it's great if you're going to go back at the end of the day and you've got a lodge to stand, but if you were staying on the hill for a night, it, it's just bloody dangerous. You know, there's <laughs> there's far better clothing out there. I'm I'm a bit of a nut for good gear and. Uh, Dressing in the right gear, I think, in those sort of exposed elements is pretty important. I tell you, yeah, it's definitely, I don't imagine it's something I would, I would adopt on the regular by any stretch, but it's, it's one of those things that because it's, there's so much tradition and history behind it, I feel like it's definitely one of those things one time in my life I want to do, whether it's, yeah, whether it's it's going after stag or uh, even just a, a bird hunt, just one time in my life, I want to come out and dress the part and be part of that to experience that tradition. Because I think it is just such an it, it's beautiful and it's so iconic and yeah. it's hard to not want to be part of that at least once. Yeah, I think it's like going to a different party. You think it might not be your party, but you think, well, I'm going to go and try this at least once. And we do it. We do, uh, we do a couple of days walked up grouse shooting um, each year with some good friends up in Scotland. And I'm 
rubbish with a shotgun, so we don't get many grouse. But, you know, <laughs> we have a great time and we all dress up. I tend to put a kilt on for that, actually, um, which isn't the most practical stuff. But it works and it's it's a bit of fun. It's As I say, it's a bit of theatre, but we have a really good time. It's a real good crack with the lads. We probably get, you know, we might end up with a dozen grouse, uh, enough to cook in for the evening, and it's a great walk. And um, you go through some fantastic countryside. Sadly, uh, the old grouse shooting is getting a bit of a hard time in the UK at the moment because there's certain individuals, namely the BBC and such like, that have decided that grouse shooting isn't good for the environment and it's cruel on birds. And it, again, it's ill education and, and poorly, you know, advised people make coming to conclusions because they don't know any better. But uh, that's another subject that we could talk about podcast. But yeah, it's it's very special. It's a, it's a very special thing to do. And I feel privileged to get those opportunities to do that. Well, you know, I think what you bring up and yeah, we could definitely record a whole podcast on this, but I think it, it's something critical to talk about. And because it's an issue we have here in the States too, is that that misinformation, that education. And I've, you know, I've had discussions around this with people before, but you talk about we as hunters, we have facts on our side. We have the science on our side. Uh, what we don't do well is uh, is get across that emotion behind what we do. And we are not good at advertising that. We, we love to talk to each other. We yeah. love being in our own echo chamber. And, yeah. you know, we... We talk about these grand things and all this great information, but the only people we're telling are other hunters. You already converted. Yeah. And I think we need to get it out there and do a better job. And, you know, I've taken a couple of vegans hunting before and I've, I've started the conversation often and say, look, you compare with what I do compared to a chicken farm or an intensive meat farm of some order, right? And uh, come out hunting with me for a day and then you decide what's crueler. Now, with over 7 billion people on the planet, I've said this before, you need those intensive farms. I'm just lucky enough that I don't have to eat that meat, you know, and I choose to hunt mine. My partner, uh, Magali, she, she actually was pretty anti-hunting when I met her. She now actually says, I feel that I should pull the trigger and go and hunt something. I actually feel a bit of a hypocrite for not doing that process and buying it from a supermarket or a butcher she doesn't want to do it, and it would absolutely destroy her if it got, a wrong, got it wrong. But she very much is on side of the hunters now, and that's been a slow education and understanding. And she came from a family that really didn't understand it either. Again, you see some overweight guy in front of an elephant that he's just shot. It doesn't paint a big picture. If you break that down and you take a picture an hour and a half later and that elephant's feeding the local village and you see the money that that guy spanked, to get to that hunt and you find out that elephant's actually in its last few years, you know, those are the kind of things that we need to be talking about and better explaining. Um, and I think there's some very good people out there doing that job. Um, we just need more of them. Mm -hmm. There's, I mean, a people like, again, bringing up Rachel Carey, she is, has been an absolutely incredible ambassador for hunting to the non hunting community um people uh like I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with robbie kroger he runs the uh yeah yeah, blood yeah. Origins. Blood origins. really good guy oh but, yeah 
Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, you want to talk about someone that is finally coming coming at it in a in a tactful way that people that are not involved in hunting can respond to. He really draws out the emotions of why we hunt and our reasons behind hunting and brings them to the forefront and tells these stories. And it's not just about like, Hey, let's, and don't get me wrong. I love sitting down and watching a highlight of, of elk kill shots or whatever it happens to be to get me pumped for the season. But that's not going to resonate with a larger audience. And so to see that finally coming out is just absolutely huge. Well, I think Robbie's good for many in many regards, he does that very well. He also will bring non-atypical hunters into the fore. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a really good story to promote. And he also backs it up with science and void of emotion. Um, and I think those three elements all tucked together make a very nice cake that can be sold to anybody um, unless they're just blind to it or don't want to listen. But, you know, you take anywhere where... Um, Hunters have taken control of animal management, particularly we get back to the States again. What a wonderful job's been done there. And there's a lot of poor information sort of fired off about certainly South Africa. I mean, look, at the end of the day, a lot of those farms, you might want to call them farms or estates or whatever, that now will take you out hunting were cattle farms previously. What they're doing now is giving animals an opportunity to grow and mature. You hunt them. Uh, somebody's paying good dollar for doing that and the meat is still processed. I, I struggle to see any difference between that and a regular cow farm, frankly. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's the, the oldest reason in the book. It provide it creates value for those animals. Whereas, uh, you know, before they were a nuisance or they were a danger. Yeah. Um, and there was no benefit to having those animals around. You're going to get a lot more benefit out of either growing crops in that area or, or having some sort of cattle style animal versus yeah. now uh, hunting creates, uh, creates value in those animals. And, and higher value as well. I mean, I'm an absolute, I'm, I'm a big fan of what they're doing down there. And I think it's, it's not necessarily my kind of thing, but I think it's absolutely excellent what they've done. They've, they, it's probably very, very good for the economy, probably far better than classic bringing on cattle. Um, there's more versatility. There's a lot more wildlife out there. Um, yeah. Full marks to these guys for make, making it happen. I think it just, it just comes down to, we need to communicate all of this better. The real story, we need to invest in, you know, we have all these, these hunting film, film series that are absolutely fantastic. And I love checking out all these hunting films, watching them on YouTube, going to these little tours here in the States. But again, we're just, you know, we're, we're telling the disciples about Jesus here. Yeah, um, yeah. I yeah, mean, absolutely. it's just not gonna, it's not gonna move that needle. And we need to take some of this money we're investing into building these films and telling these stories and invest it in bringing a bit more things to light. Like you look at something like, you know, uh, Renella uh, and Meat Eater and yeah. how that has proliferated across Netflix. And he, I mean, you can talk to just about anyone and be like, and talk to them about hunting. And half of the time I, I have them bring it up before I can. And they're like, 
oh yeah do you know who that uh ranella guy is on on netflix he has that meat meat eater show and i'm like yeah and it and he just brings such a positive message and it spreads it in a way that's that's i don't want to say palatable for everyone but is uh relatable to yeah, non-hunters relatable is a good word and the other thing that uh Renella's done so well is it's it's an honest approach you know they don't hide away from their mistakes and they they share that and i i'm a big believer in i i think that's great the other thing is it's not just about the kill it's about the whole story and about what you're eating at the end of the day and how they process it and i think that's 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 a much more it's got a nicer organic feel about the thing the adventure, the hunt, you might not, some of their fantastic trips, they don't end up getting anything, but when they do, they cook it and process it. You know, we've been doing that since we've been on the planet. So for people to now try and alienate themselves from that, it's a bit surreal, actually. And I can take it from somebody who's vegan or vegetarian, but I will not listen to somebody stuffing a burger in their face or a Mackie D's or a KFC saying what I'm doing is cruel. Because frankly, we're on the planet, Things die, things get eaten. It's the only way we grow. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, I have boundless respect. You know, this is is a, a horrible thing to say because uh, I'll get a lot of crap for it, but I have boundless respect for vegans, mm. depending on their reasons for it. Because at least I can have res- disagree with someone and have respect for someone, though, that, that sticks to a set of beliefs and actually acts those out in their life. But like you said, it's the, the, the biggest hypocrite in the book is the guy that sits there and says, oh, hunting's cruel and this and that and the other when yeah, he's going to going to Chick-fil-A or McDonald's or a steakhouse or something and shoveling something down. It's just like, okay, you just, so your problem is doing it yourself. Then. Yeah. 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 It's no different from somebody that buys trash and just, uh, sorry, buys a coffee and chucks it out of their window and lets somebody else clear up the mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I defend that vehemently. I just say, well, you go and have a look at that chicken farm where those KFC chickens come from. I'm sure those guys aren't having a whole bunch of fun. At least, you know, if you're you're going out after an elk, you're probably looking for a mature animal or a cull mm-hmm. animal for sure, or it's got a problem. And you're you're doing what the process is. You're managing animals. And um, as you alluded to, as you said earlier, you know, animals, if they don't have some monetary value to them, they don't survive. You know, it's just you can see where we've not got hunters involved and take certain parts of Africa where they banned hunting for a period of time and look at the consequences. Oh, absolutely. Uh, switching gears a little bit, you know, I wanted to give you a chance. Uh, you are our president of Spartan Precision Equipment. Did want to did want to give you a chance just to tell us a little bit about the company and what you guys do. Um, just kind of how how that came about. So I, right, my background, as I say, is probably as much climbing mountains as it is hunting and, and fly fishing, any, any excuse to be outdoors. But as a mountaineer, climber, you carry everything. You know, if you're doing lightweight um, trips and such like, and I used to climb to sort of fairly reasonable level, um, you have to carry everything with you. So I've always been a bit of a weight nut. You know, I've always, I'm not a big guy. Um, I was a bit bigger when I was a bit younger, but I don't want to, carry anything unnecessary so i grew up using a harris bipod fine tool 
you know, and I don't knock them. And even to this day, I said they've definitely got their place. And what the guy had to work with materials back then, he did an epic job. But I used to take a lot of people out hunting um, in the UK. Um, I took a particular individual out after some row. One time I got him, I got him nicely lined up on a beautiful roebuck and I'd taken the bipod off my rifle. And he didn't feel comfortable making the shot. And I, anybody that knows me, I'm the last person to push somebody to pull that trigger if they don't feel confident about doing it. So we let that little roebuck uh, live another day and we called it a day. But I'd failed that guy. That's what I felt. I came away thinking mm, I could have done a better job. Um, and then in a previous life, I was in aero engines. Uh, so I got involved in all sorts of interesting materials. And um, basically, I came up with this idea to stick a bipod on the rifle with a magnet because I don't want a bipod on my rifle. I will so rarely use a bipod down south. If I was up in Scotland, I'd use one much more regularly. So I came up with this design engineer friend and he made me a little metal leg thing um, with a magnet on it. And hey, presto, that was the end of that. I just thought, oh, this has got legs, excuse the pun. <laughs> and so we launched, we launched the product um, about five or six years ago now. But we've only really got reasonably well known and we still we're still relatively very well very unknown in the states i'd imagine but in the last two years we came out with a carbon fiber bipod that pops on the rifle and it weighs less than your iphone and you keep it in your pocket and you whack it on when you want it and take it off when you don't but obviously that brings a lot of advantages i can put that bipod on quicker than you can drop two legs on a conventional bipod uh, happy accident having shooting off carbon legs you probably wouldn't go back to shooting off metal because it's recoil management it's a bit like putting suspension on your car so that's my little spartan history there we've since gone into tripods trekking poles and the whole modular systems um, that basically enable you to take an ethical shot um, and give you answers where you wouldn't necessarily have them uh, but as i say you know, I was as passionate about climbing as I was hunting and as passionate about fishing. So the whole systems that we make, they're multifaceted. Our tripods will turn into trekking poles. We even make a tent that uses the tripod system. So, yeah, that's probably enough about Spartan. That's my history. And that's really what's given me the facility to come to America a lot and play with you guys and really understand what a fantastic um, job you guys have done over there with uh with your wildlife and your public lands absolutely and i you know one thing we, you you've alluded to it a few times you've mentioned it a few times and how did how did your experience with climbing really how did that convert into into hunting yeah i probably missed that it, it's it's just another it's just another way of enjoying nature and for me it doesn't matter whether i'm got ice axes fly rod or a rifle it's just a good excuse to be out and enjoying nature and i've been really fortunate and traveled most of the world gone to some incredibly remote places um, and i could be doing any one or maybe more than one of those things at that time so i spent a lot of time with the inuit i've climbed in greenland i've been to the himalayas many times climbed there spent a lot of time in south america so i love engaging with local sort of indigenous people um, but getting back, the climbing thing, 
uh, really sort of migrated into the shooting thing because hunting is probably less demanding on the body than trying to climb a 6,000-meter route <laughs> in the Himalaya. And if I'm honest <laughs> with myself, I am not wired that way. And I've, I've had some pretty close calls as well, and I would imagine I was in Greenland, let's say, 10 years ago, and I soloed a route. It was an unclimbed mountain, and um, I was with a pretty famous climber, a guy called Simon Yates, for cutting his buddy off um, when they were both basically dying, and he got up. He, he was vilified for that for many years, but he's a good dude. Um, he's never cut me off. Um, <laughs> and... Um, <clears throat> And actually, in the situation he, he was facing, he did absolutely the right thing. What happened was the guy that he cut off actually survived and wrote a book about it called Touching the Void. And had he cut him off and died, probably nobody would have ever said another word. But there we are. But, uh, yeah, worth worth watching that or reading a book some stage. But um, anyway, yeah, back to Greenland. And I soloed this route. And uh, then we were, three days later, we were, moving through the pass to go and climb another climb and the whole side of that mountain let go and i thought oh i was on that three days ago on my own and if i was on there now you'd never see me i'd have been gone you know and i think those kind of situations in life make you recalibrate oneself and i maybe thought i'm getting a bit old for this right oh i've got away with too many lives and maybe i should slip into something slightly less stressy and so, really, I replaced the ice axes with the rifle. And not, I'm not saying it isn't dangerous when you go hunting in remote areas. You can still very easily come undone and kill yourself. Um, but I think the risks are slightly less. Yeah, and I still get the great enjoyment out of it. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I've been playing the percentages for a long time now, and I've won. But you can only... You can only win so many times, so let's uh, let's just ease that back a little bit. Yeah, I, I, and that's exactly, I think, the conclusion I came to. I just thought I've been quite lucky. Um, I've had a few enough close calls to recognise I have been quite lucky. And the, the climbing game is exactly that. You know, if you're going to climb to a serious level and do enough climbs, one day it's going to come unstuck. You're going to get it wrong, right? And it might be completely out with your control. You know, you might be under a Sarek ice field and it lets go. You you could be in an avalanche and it lets go. I was lucky in that case that the avalanche kicked off three days after I'd done the route. But yeah, just so many things that can come unwired. And you only need one or two to come unwired at the same time and your curtains. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think I enjoy living too much and I like my beer. <laughs> There's there's entirely too many beers to drink and too much left to do to <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But it's 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 been an epic journey. Um and the I like meeting the personalities in the hunting world. Um I tend to climbers can be quite interesting people, as are hunters, but I think hunters tend to be a little bit more socially engaging. Uh certainly with the hunter, you know, I've I've met some Brilliant people in the hunting world, absolutely brilliant people, passionate about the wildlife, passionate about the outdoors. So I get I get enough of a buzz out of that um, at my stage in life to really, really get great pleasure. And I'm just lucky. I mean, I during this lockdown, I managed to get out to Tajikistan for two and a half weeks, um, right on the Afghan border. And we were 
hunting ibex and Marco Polo, and that was an epic trip. Very, very cold, got down to minus 29 centigrade. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's probably about the same at that stage. Um, so that was really good time to uh, test our kit and test one's metal, really. Uh, but, yeah, fantastic trip. So in all of the traveling you've done, I mean, it sounds like you've hunted all over the world, all sorts uh, of different styles. Yeah, not, not it, I've done Africa, I, and not outside of South Africa. I've done Botswana. I enjoyed that. I'd love to go and shoot an old hunt an old buffalo somewhere like Tanzania, for example. That is something that's definitely on my list. Yeah, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, uh, New Zealand, um, very little in the US um, and a lot in Europe. Uh, but it, it's what's what's interesting is the flavor is always slightly different but I've never yet had a flavor that I didn't enjoy, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what are, you know, and this may be a weird or loaded question, uh, but what are some of the, you know, in, in all the different places you've gone, what are some of maybe the common threads you see across the various hunting communities or hunting experiences you had? I think the, I think the people, wherever they are, um, have, a, have a very common thread. You know, whether it's Inuit or, you know, from like Canada or Greenland or whether it's guys, that, you know, um, down in Patagonia, they all have an absolute passion for what they do. You just simply wouldn't do it otherwise. Um, for me, I always try and thread in the out. I love hunting in the mountain environment because it's just a DNA. And I think it's a nice element. Enough for me, Sussex is not exactly loaded with mountain. <laughs> so I'm in absolutely the wrong place. For me, if I if I could relive my life, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here in Sussex right now. No. Yeah, it's Scotland's much more appealing for me for that. But uh, common threads, definitely the people, but an engaging people as well. People that want to share their passion and share their, you know, I. Yes, there are bad hunters out there and there's bad people in all communities. But I'd say generally hunters are pretty caring individuals and. The non-hunter perspective really struggle with that when most hunters have got pet dogs and animals. You know, my has four horses. She's an avid hunter, right? And she's got a baby fox at the moment she's bought. And they go, well, this doesn't quite work. And I say, yes, it does. They're just more balanced. Yeah. Just have a respect for wildlife. But they also are adult enough to know they need to kill things if they want to grow. Mm-hmm. So, uh one thing I always kind of like to wind things down with is say, uh, say somebody comes up to you and they're interested in hunting, but maybe they've never been, they don't have any experience with it uh, or they just don't know anyone that's involved. And they come to you and say, Hey, you know, this is something I've been very interested in, but I don't know if I'm capable of it. I don't know how to even start, you know, uh, maybe I shouldn't try and take this on. What, uh, what advice would you give that person? Well, first bit of advice is you only regret the things you don't do. So I'd always encourage people to try that flavor. They might come away from it and say, mm, it's not for me. But in my experience, most people, if it's done right way, come back with some really good memories. Even if it's an unsuccessful hunt, they're going to have an adventure. And I've been lucky enough to take people out that have never hunted before, and I can't think of one of those that's turned out wrong. 
I'm not saying they all went off and bought rifles or bows and suddenly became hunters, but they certainly had a new experience. And they had a better knowledge and better understanding of what we do. So I quite like that challenge. You know, I, as I said before, I've had two vegans that have come out with me. And one of them actually ended up eating the venison that we'd shot. He said, I, 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 I feel comfortable doing this because we caught it and we processed it, blah, blah, blah. So I looked at that as a real, you know, success from oh, my small part. If we could repeat that in a many ways and many directions and as you say uh, blood origins and things certainly tries to encourage people that wouldn't otherwise be hunters to have a go at it i think it's great it can go drastically wrong when you probably go with the wrong people or you try and do too much yourself too early um and i think that could really put people off so i would encourage to I'd encourage people that are thinking about doing it to try and anchor themselves into somebody that's done it before, has a wealth of experience that can let them in gently. Does that make sense, Sam? Absolutely. Absolutely makes sense. Um, so if uh, folks wanted to follow along online uh, with, with you or with Spartan, um, where, can they, where can they find you guys online? Yeah, we have. So if they put javelinbipod.com in or Spartan Precision Equipment, um, They'll find us on our uh, on our website. We've got an Instagram called Spark Precision Equipment as well. I've got a little Instagram called Spark Mr G, um, and uh, yeah, we're we're dealing with a lot of good good companies over in the US. There's a great company called Happy Antelope that sell our products as well on on Amazon. There's a, a lovely woman called Amy Branded Rock Canyon in Colorado. She sells our products, but there's more and more places that you can find our products in the US. And we'd encourage people to buy in the US because obviously it's easier and you're going to get those products more easily and quicker. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today to hop on. Really enjoyed our discussion. Uh, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, Sam. Good to speak to you and thank you for the opportunity. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Big thank you to Rob for taking the time to hop on again all the way from across the pond. I always love having that unique perspective uh, on hunting that's, you know, not the same thing that you hear all the time on this podcast. So big thank you to him for hopping on. Make sure y'all check out spartan and the javelin bipod uh the links are on the show notes page but y'all that'll do it for this week looking forward to next time but until then i hope this podcast inspired you to get involved get outdoors and plan your initiative for the wild Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from The Wild Initiative family, and more. 